0: and members of the SRB Table of Ranks who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's podcast is a recording of a live interview I did with Maria Christina Galmarini for the keynote session at the Aging Disability and Health in Socialist Europe and Beyond workshop, held in late March at the University of Pittsburgh. Disability activism developed in the second half of the 20th century in a world divided by the Cold War. While the history of how Western activists learned to speak in the language of civil rights is well documented and publicly celebrated, the legacies of activists from socialist countries have been largely erased after the collapse of communist governments in 1989 and 1991. This interview with Maria Cristina Gamarini gives a more complete history of the international disability movement by focusing on blind activists from the Soviet Union and the German Democratic Republic, their philosophies and practices, and how the socialist side shaped global disability advocacy during the Cold War. Maria Cristina Gamarini is an associate professor of history and global studies at William and Mary College, where she researches the history of disability under socialism. She's the author of The Right to Be Helped, Deviance, Entitlement, and the Soviet Moral Order. And she's currently finishing a book titled Ambassadors of Social Progress, A History of International Blind Activism During the Cold War. Here's Christina Gamarini. So um, you do have this upcoming book, which I mentioned, uh, "Ambassadors of Social Progress," which is about blind activism and disability rights in in a global context, and so. I want to ask you first, what is the story you're trying to tell with this book? You know, we we scholars don't usually think in terms of story, we think in terms of argument, but I'm curious as to what the story you want to tell here.
1: Uh, Yes, so the book as upcoming is a a very optimistic uh, statement. Uh, I'm finishing up the manuscript. I don't know when the book will be uh, out, uh, but uh, I'm in the final stages right now finishing the manuscript. So the story is uh, uh, to put it very simply is the story of how um, a group of blind men and few women from the socialist part of Europe really shaped uh, the advocacy movement, uh, international blind advocacy movement. Um, so in the 1950s uh, and 1960s uh, uh, the, the model for the blind movement to to do advocacy uh, was still uh, um, quite outdated one might say philanthropic model, charity-based model Uh, the movement was dominated by service agencies for the blind, so experts, uh, philanthropists this is the story of how it was uh, in in the West Uh, well, after World War II, uh, the countries of Eastern Europe adopted a Soviet model of doing advocacy for people with disabilities, for blind people in this case specifically. And that was a state-centered model. It was a model whereby blind people themselves uh, were the leaders of these mass organizations for the blind. So when Western activists and Eastern activists started to meet uh, because the Soviet Union opened up uh, after 1956 uh, with Khrushchev, uh, uh, Western activists realized how powerful it was this model. Uh, it, had, it was centered on labor, employment, giving, giving jobs to blind people, giving agency, putting them uh, the leadership of these mass organizations, the state was giving uh, support, pensioning laws seemed great. So it's a story of how uh, these socialist activists, uh, themselves blind, entered the international blind movement, shaped it, and were uh, considered as uh, equal and very authoritative voices, I would say, up until the mid-70s. Then things changed.
0: Oh, we'll have to get into why, why things changed. But first, I want, I want to ask you about how you came to this topic. And how it relates to your past work? You know, I mentioned your first book, "The Right to Be Helped," which addresses, you know, social welfare and disability and rights in the first decades of the Soviet Union, really run up almost to in the, into the 1950s. Uh, so, where does this history that you're telling of, of blind activism uh, fit with that first project?
1: Yes, for for the first project, I was interested in a a more conceptual question. What does it mean to ask for help uh, in the Soviet Union if you're not a model citizen? To answer that question, I needed uh, entry points. Uh, And so I I picked a few uh, social groups uh, that were marginalized in that society, such as unemployed single mothers, uh, deaf people, blind people, uh, and so-called morally defective children. So, I started to develop an interest in disability studies at that point, uh, and as I was working with the archives of the uh, All-Russian Society of the Deaf and the All-Russian Society of the Blind, I discovered it's a very interesting story itself. Um, so that's how I got interested in writing about the blind, but then I also realized I want to write about the second half of the 20th century, and I want to understand how different this, how differently uh, this uh, uh, organization of the blind operated in Russia as opposed to other countries in the world. So slowly I got into this international trans Trans uh, transnational history uh, and I found uh, amazing connections, uh, I found activists that are still alive uh, and I talk with them um, so I slowly discovered that it's much more interesting to position the socialist model of uh, disability politics and disability advocacy in the larger context, we see we see what was specific about that. We we compare it uh, with a Western model that uh, most people are more familiar with.
0: Um, I actually have. I was wondering uh, this when I was reading the the chapter you sent me, the article you sent me, uh, and I didn't include it in my questions. But I'm just going to ask it anyways. It, it, are the doc I'm curious about the archive, right? I, I'm fascinated by archives in general, but. For for an archive that deals with an organization for blind people, how are the, are the documents in Braille? Are they both, like, what, is, what are some of the issues with doing this type of research uh, with the, the sources that you used?
1: So some documents uh, are in Braille. I do not read Braille. Uh, but the documents in Braille are very few. Uh, and most of them have transcripts in uh, ink print, in, in regular ink. Uh, this is specifically in socialist countries. Those were state organizations and there was always a chain of command, right? Somebody was checking on them. There were party cells in these organizations. There were audits uh, coming from uh, uh, higher authorities. So they couldn't use Braille as their secret language, uh, obviously. Uh, I think more interesting about the, the archives is the detective work that I had to do to find these archives, uh, because in in the Russian case I was lucky. Uh, the archive of the russian Society of the Blind is in, uh, um, in this, in the archive of the, of the Russian Federation up until 69. After 69, it was preserved in the organization itself. So I had to knock at their doors and ask permission to see their archive. But when it came to, to the GDR, uh, the archive of the, uh, of the Blind Union of the GDR is in, um, in a library, the Central Library of the Blind in Leipzig. Uh, and there too, I was like the first person to look at it. Uh, when I uh, when I was after the archive of the European Regional Committee of the Blind, uh, I found it in uh, the private office of uh, uh, the European Blind Union and I had to sign all sorts of release documents. Uh, uh, I couldn't use uh, a computer taking notes. They asked me to uh, use just... Um, just handwrite everything, uh, so it was there was a lot of detective work on knocking at people's doors and offices to find these documents. So those are groups uh, I realize how marginalized actually.
0: Yeah, this is why I'm I was curious about you know if the documents are are written in braille or not and, and to what extent because it also I would imagine brings up issues of like voice and agency, right? Like the you know I don't how did how did blind activists consume these these materials and documents. Um, You know, who is representing them if somebody else is constructing those documents?
1: So in all these organizations of the blind that I studied, uh, they were not 100 percent staffed by blind people only. Uh, This is a big issue, actually, in blind advocacy to this day. Should the organization of the blind be exclusively of the blind or advocacy or does advocacy work better when it includes also cited people. And so this is a debate that goes on in the United States as well to this day. Uh, so most of the organizations, all of the organizations I worked with uh, uh, had sighted uh, staff. And this is really fundamental because uh, they, they were constantly in touch with other disability organizations. Or mobility impaired or Rehabilitation International, for instance, uh, welfare organizations, uh, the United Nations, uh, UNICEF, uh, you name it. So they needed to be able to communicate in other ways than rail.
0: Well, let's, let's get into some of the issues that you, you deal with. Um, why don't you set us up and give us some background and context for the blind movement, advocacy movement after World War II? What, what went on before the war and how things changed at, at the end of the war?
1: Yes, um, so the, the a movement of the blind, meaning uh, a movement that is led by non-sighted individuals. Uh, uh, this type of, of movement started in the late 19th century, uh, but really they took off after World War I. That's because of the influx of veterans, blinded veterans. Before that, uh, it, it was not so much blind advocacy, but uh, uh, we should talk about blind welfare that was uh, uh, managed by um, teachers of the blind, so sighted teachers of special education, uh, ophthalmologists, uh, philanthropists of various types. Uh, So only in the 1920s uh, you start to have both at the local and national uh, level organizations of the blind. And uh, the Soviet Union was uh, uh, one of the first countries to have a centralized national organization of the blind. After World War II, uh, so there is a hiatus, of course, during the war, not much can happen, especially at the international level, at the level of contacts, travel. uh, Also, you know, in in Europe uh, with uh, uh, Nazi ideology, you really don't have much uh, resources uh, uh, for um, blind advocacy. Although blinded veterans had a special position in Germany too um, during the Nazi time. Uh, but so after the war, uh, you have this movement that started in the 1920s and 1930s, both nationally and internationally. You have it. Uh, uh, you have it again. Uh, the same activists revamp it, and they start meeting in the Western world. Uh, they meet in Oxford, England, in '49, and then in '51 they uh, found World Council for the Welfare of the Blind. Uh, the socialist countries uh, initially were not part of it. Mm, they initially wanted to create their counterweight, uh, their parallel socialist uh, glo- socialist organization, transnational organizations. But then eventually they decided it was uh, uh, more profitable, more expedient for all of them to join the World Council and change it. So they slowly changed it: Poland first, Czechoslovakia, Hungary. Eventually, by 1967, the GDR and the Soviet Union. Now, not only in '67 the GDR and the Soviet Union joined the World Council, uh, but in 1974, uh, um, uh, in uh, the Russian, the president of the Russian Association of the Blind becomes the president of the World Council for the Welfare of the Blind. And he keeps this position for four years. Uh, afterwards, he's a deputy a president, so he's still in on the board in the executive committee of this world organization. Uh, The president of the GDR Union of the Blind instead becomes the general secretary of the European Regional Committee of this uh, global agency. So you have two uh, representatives uh, of the socialist world occupying really important positions. In parallel to the World Council, uh, which is an organization mixed, you have both sighted and blind people in it. Another uh, world organization is set up that's the International Federation of the Blind and this is a more radical group. Uh, it's formed in the United States mm, and this group is radical in that they do not want any, the presence of any sighted helper. They are also adamantly anti-communist. Uh, the two organizations then merged in 1984 and what is today the World Union of the Blind? So that's kind of the, the background.
0: I want you to talk about the 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 fact this organiz- this Soviet organization, the All Russian Blind Union, that develops after the revolution and continues, uh, and and particularly that it had a, a different it had a different type of model. Um, so talk about this organization and and what it tried to advocate.
1: Yes. So it was set up. Uh, um, Informally in 23, 1923, and then officially in 1924, at the organization's founding congress, um, it was a mass organization, uh, which meant it was part of the state apparatus. It was it operated under the aegis of the um, Commissariat of Social Welf- Social Welfare at that point, later Ministry of Social Welfare. Uh, it had a, a, an almost exact twin in the All Russian Society of the Deaf, about which Claire Shaw has written her book. So I'm really indebted to, to her and her work on the All Russian Society of the Deaf. And the two organizations operated very similarly. Uh, so they were staffed by people with disabilities themselves. Mm, uh, they, uh, their main goal uh, was to integrate blind people, in this case, into the, the construction of socialism. So they were completely loyal uh, to the state. Uh, they were uh, constantly towing the party line, repeating it, supporting it. Uh, they were supporting the state as much as they asked the state to support them. So part of my, my argument uh, in this project is to, uh, that we should rethink what's disability advocacy and we should not exclude state organizations from it just because they're state organizations. Uh, there was a capacity, I, I argue, for lobbying. Despite the fact that these people never took to the streets and never protested against their state, now of course their uh, close marriage with the state set certain constraints to what they did, what they could achieve. Uh, but still, I, I do think this is a type of advocacy. So, and their main goal was to integrate um, blind people in the project, uh, in the social constructional project. Uh, um, giving jobs was fundamental, uh, but also providing them with all sorts of assistive, te- assistive technology. Uh, so there was a lot of work done in what is called the TIFLO technology, that's the production of blind aids and apparatus devices to help uh, uh, read right? Uh, um, all sorts of mobility uh, technology. Um, and as you can understand, with, uh, with the cyber age, right? With the introduction of computers, uh, it becomes very important for visually impaired people to use technology. Uh, what else they did? Uh, well, they, they had all sorts of cultural recreational programs. Uh, they used they had very profitable Um, production training enterprises for the blind. Those were um, uh, plants, industrial plants, uh, uh, with uh, at least 50% uh, uh, staff, uh, uh, at least 50% workers uh, visually impaired. They were very profitable. And because of this uh, profit, uh, uh, VOS, that's the old Russian Society of the Blind, could use profit for building dorms, building libraries, theaters, or source of infrastructure that improved the lives of blind people.
0: I have a question about this, because I mean, I remember this from Claire Shaw's book on the deaf, and it was a similar type of process. But is the orientation, so this this seems to me about creating conditions for self-determination, right? so where does the, the the issue of providing blind the blind people with self-determination versus the mission of say which I associate more in terms of a Western model of integrating them into general society?
1: No this is an excellent question because this is really uh, the, the the limit of what advocacy was uh, So these activists the activists activist of, of us, uh, Their goal was integration, and they repeated it to the left and to the right. That's really what they wanted to do. Now, their uh, approach was the following. They believed that the best way to integrate children, for instance, is to educate them in segregated schools, because segregated schools are the best environment to prepare them eventually to join the collective. Um, By the same token, uh, the best way to um, make uh, uh, blind people into worthy, uh, self-satisfied, happy citizens is to give them employment, and employment can be given in sheltered workshops that operate parallel to the regular economy, to the regular market. Now, while Socialist activists, both in the GDR and in the Soviet Union, insisted that uh, uh, they wanted to integrate and they are just given the best conditions. Uh, they are creating uh, uh, opportunities for blind people to meet with the rest of society. Reality is that this was a parallel world. And uh, when Western activists in the late 60s, early 70s, began to push back socialist activists on this. That's the time when uh, integrationist theories, mainstreaming, um, emerges in the United States, spreads to Northern and Western Europe. At their international conferences, uh, some Western activists start to question whether segregated education on the Soviet model, despite its many benefits, still is the best way to achieve inclusion. And there is this moment in the late 60s and early to mid 70s where they're not sure they're really debating this uh, but then eventually they uh, lean on the side of integrationist approaches so segregated education and sheltered uh, workshops for the blind really are no longer the model of progress
0: and and so and how do and how do the blind act do you have a sense of how blind activists until this this debate you know how did they respond to the pushback, and and how did they how did they respond to the limits of integration with this parallel you know structure that's being created?
1: Well, they were too invested in this for several reasons. Uh, they had set up a huge infrastructure that was profitable, economically profitable. So uh, the um, actually, Boris Zemin, the president uh, of VOS for many years and uh, president of the World Council for the Welfare of the Blind, gave an interview in 1995, so post-91, uh, um, to uh, a blind journalist uh, and also activist, uh, Lapshin. In this interview, uh, he said, uh, he, he got pushback from the journalist uh, and he, he said, that giving up on this, of this, on this infrastructure of sheltered uh, workshops would have meant giving up on all the profits, all the money to do all the wonderful things we were doing for blind people in their everyday life. Uh, um, so there, there was an economic reason, uh, but I also argue, maybe even more importantly, uh, there was. A, these, these blind activists were not completely free agents, as you can understand. When they went abroad, they were ambassadors, right? Ambassadors of a model of social progress. Now going back, right? And uh, uh, admitting that that, mom, that model uh, had some problems would have undermined the entire uh, argument about the superiority of the Soviet Union and they couldn't afford it. That's their limitation, right? That's one of the limitations.
0: Yeah, this this uh, let's talk about them as as these cultural diplomats and ambassadors in this international movement. Um, because as you as you rightly say, you know they're going as ambassadors. They they are representing a system, the Soviet Union, and the particular approach to blindness. Uh, however, as you also say, there, there's a circular effect where they're also coming back from their experience of networking with not only you know activists and other socialist countries, but also in the wider world. So talk about that dynamic as as these cultural ambassadors.
1: Yes, this was one of the most uh, uh, surprising and amazing aspects of my research to discover. Uh, this this international network, this global network. Uh, I I had no idea of how much these blind activists were traveling, and I'm talking not only about the Russian ones, uh, uh, but uh, uh, really from all socialist republics, mostly um, Czechoslovakia, the GDR, Hungary, uh, Poland, uh, uh, Bulgaria. Those were the most active. The Romanians were also somehow involved, but uh, uh, in a less intensive intense way. Um, so they they were traveling. They were going to the west, uh, to Western Europe, to Northern Europe, to the Third World. That's another uh, interesting venue of their uh, of their work. They were organizing these uh, multilateral conferences uh, in in East Berlin, in Moscow, in Varna, Bulgaria. Uh, so th- through these encounters, they were advertising a model, the model of. The socialist model of advocacy, the superiority of socialism, claiming that only in the conditions of socialism can blind people achieve self-determination and integration. So they were clearly uh, doing propaganda uh, for their states, but for themselves as well. Because when they put themselves out there as visibly disabled people, Uh, They were also arguing that people with disabilities, blind people have agency, that they they can be ambassadors of their states. So I became fascinated in thinking about the visual economy of diplomatic work and the visual economy of disability. Uh, You have uh, blind people who move confidently in the international arena that represent the Soviet Union as blind people. Uh, so they, they themselves are doing uh, uh, propaganda for, for themselves, uh, for the blind. And that's the also a moment of the disability advocacy that I see them doing. Uh, and this is a message they deliver to the states back home, in a way, see? We are exemplary citizens. We are definitely embodying social progress with our own bodies and impairments. Uh, they're learning. They're learning. Uh, the. Sure. It's it's amazing the amount of technology that they brought back from these trips. Uh, prototypes uh, were exchanged. Uh, the Soviet Union was really good at creating technology for the job. So, but no, not so good with technology, for instance, in uh, you know audio books uh, or uh, you know ophthalmological care. Um, so they were learning a lot uh, from the West, uh, and uh, in there is an exchange. Uh, and this came out clearly when I interviewed a uh, few uh, activists who are still alive, and they all spoke about this uh, how much they learned from each other
0: and and how did it how did the lobbying aspect of it work? like if you have this circular relationship, they're bringing back ideas, they're bringing back technologies, different methods, different forms of representation of blind life. how did they how did this they try to pressure? uh the state to and their or, own organization to to begin to adopt or even consider some of these things that they didn't have
1: yes let me give you two examples that i think speak for themselves uh one is uh, from uh, contacts uh, with other socialist countries so when uh, the president of VOS at that time, uh, Ivanov, uh, went to Czechoslovakia at a certain point in the uh, country remember it was 57, 58, around that time, he discovered that uh, uh, the Czechoslovak organization of the blind had developed a, a very good system for training blind telephone operators. And that there were, there were around 100 blind telephone operators only in the city of Prague. Uh, he came back and he wrote a report uh, as he was supposed to. He wrote a report to higher authorities about the trip that he just did to Prague. Well, in that report, he, of course, uh, uh, kept saying uh, the Czechoslovaks are very interested in us. They're looking up to us. Uh, So he did all the rhetorical moves that he was supposed to do. But he also clearly said, we are behind we don't have a a program to train a blind telephone operator. While only in the city of Prague, they have 100 employed. The other example, I instead, is from a trip that Zimin, the next president, uh, uh, took to uh, Finland uh, in, uh, um, that was in 66, so around 10 years later. Finland, right, Uh, uh, West-North, Northern European country. Uh, The Northern countries were very interested in the socialist countries when it came to learning about uh, uh, their disability models. So he came back and he wrote an extremely detailed report about everything that he had observed there. Uh, The report is uh, is fastidious uh, uh, in how detailed it is about every single aspect. One example that... uh, uh, proves the lobbying moment. He observed that in the schools for the blind, for blind pupils in Finland, uh, there was an infrastructure that was uh, really good uh, at uh, helping children with mobility. He noticed there were swimming pools in special schools, uh, in schools for blind children in Finland. So he came back and uh, uh, he discussed all of this internally at Voss. And then they sent recommendations to a series of ministries. Uh, Ministry of Education, Ministry of Social Welfare, um, and other agencies. And among the points that he raised was we should copy the fins and add swimming pools to our schools for blind children. Now I don't know how well that went, and I have never seen a swimming pool added to a school for blind children in the Soviet Union, um, but the point is that they tried to lobby.
0: So what happened in 1970? That changed a lot of this.
1: So, the the nineteen seventies, the late sixties and seventies, are a specific moment in Western disability history. is the moment when you have uh, de-institutionalization movements, you have mainstreaming, you have uh, the concept of. Uh, uh, disability is a social construct. So you have access, right? You have the rights accessibility projects. Uh, Some activists in the UK and US start to say that it is society that needs to adapt to people with disabilities, not the other way around. It's a moment of change. It's a moment of the civil rights movement, which influences a lot the disability rights movement in the United States. It's the cultural revolutions of 68. So in this climate, uh, uh, activists in the Western world uh, start to change uh, their mind about certain uh, um, pillars of what had, of what disability advocacy had been until then. Uh, so they, they start also to talk about mainstreaming, de-institutionalising, opening um, job opportunities in the labour, in the re- regular labour market. So when this happens, so there is first, as I was telling you, an exchange of ideas. There are heated debates uh, and they crisscross uh, the Cold War divide, actually. So I have some activists from Britain who are convinced supporters of segregated education for blind children, for instance, uh, as much as I have Yugoslav a blind activists uh, who uh, loudly support uh, desegregation of blind schools. But slowly, uh, by the late 1970s, uh, uh, it becomes clear that uh, socialist blind activists are too intransigent in sticking to their model. Uh, Their their idea of uh, their model of disability is still a model that conceptualizes people with disabilities as people with problems, with deficits, with lack, and that was very quickly changing in the West. It's a moment of debate. It's a moment in which these old friends, because these activists were old friends by then, uh, still have respect for each other. But it is clear that uh, the banner of progress moved uh, outside of the socialist camp. Uh, It is until... uh, It is... With the early 1980s, uh, uh, when neoliberalism uh, really uh, destroys the safety net of people with disabilities in in Western Europe, still at that moment, the socialist, state-centered, state-supported model is still appreciated very much. But with the fall of communism, with the fall of the communist governments, uh, uh, immediately uh, the socialist model is delegitimized, is no longer appreciated. So that's what changes in the 70s.
0: I want to move to some of the bigger implications and how we can take this history and kind of rethink the larger structures of the period. And the first question I have is you write about the need... To Decenter the usual North Atlantic narrative, what do you mean by that, and why, why is it important to decenter it
1: well, when most of us think about uh, uh, disability rights uh, we, we think about the disability movement in terms of disability rights, we think about the ADA American with Disabilities Act of one thousand nine hundred and ninety we think that as a all sorts of civil rights battles uh, for race, about race, about uh, um, sexual rights, gender. Uh, When all these battles are fought in the 60s and 70s, so grassroots disability movements start. And they are movements that take issues to the streets uh, that uh, uh, eventually lead to the ADA. That's one way of telling the story. It's It's a way of telling the story that uh, does not consider what happened before and what happened at the same time in other parts of the world. And the story I tell is uh, less known stories because uh, uh, these blind activists were not going to the streets and protesting. So it, it's a different understanding of advocacy. It's an understanding of advocacy that is not centered on protest. So we de the Western narrative uh, by looking at the East uh, that has, has been delegitimized de- after 89 now other scholars are doing this decentering by looking at uh, uh, latin american countries by looking at african countries and i am uh, really indebted to their uh, to their scholarship uh, but i am historian of uh, uh, socialist uh, <laughs> europe so i'm looking at my corner of the world
0: do you have some kind of general sense of of those other places of latin america the so-called third world and and how these two models within the Cold War context e- influenced or inspired, etc.
1: Uh, yes, so there is very little research done on this. Uh, but uh, um, one scholar who who wrote uh, uh, quite a bit about this, this uh, uh, French scholar Brigan, he uh, wrote about the um, what he calls the. Um, Expansion, extension of the uh, American, North American rehabilitation model to the rest of the world, to Latin America in particular. Uh, he looked at Argentina and also Spain. So he found uh, something very similar to what I found, uh, uh, which is uh, a North American understanding of rehabilitation based on ideas of equality, idea of, of rights uh, um, that expands uh, to other parts of the world. At the same time, I'm saying there is also this other model that is state-centered, that is more based on welfare, uh, less on rights understood in the liberal sense, that is competing. And the third world is an interesting uh, battlefront for this competition. Um, Other scholars have looked at uh, African countries uh, and how They were receiving assistance from wherever it came, basically, in the 60s and 70s. So this is about developmental aid uh, and competition over the third world. So, There are many branches, uh, many implications to this research, and I I wish more and more scholars will take it on.
0: How does looking looking at the post-war period through the activities of, you know, broadly marginalized groups, right? We don't and when we think of the cold war we don't think of blind cultural diplomacy for example uh at least i didn't so do you do you get a has this research given you a different narrative of the cold war how from what you un, how you understood it before
1: more than a different narrative i would say it has given me a different uh, imagery of of the cold war right uh, i i now can see uh visibly different actors uh, being part uh, uh, of of the images of the Cold War. Um, And of course, it also gave me a sense of the intersecting of political identities and personal identities, Uh, the the, the pushes of uh, the ideological line and the pushes of the disability politics line that for these people were very personal.
0: Uh, here's a here's a question from the chat, and I, I remind those who who are listening, if you have questions, please put them in there. Uh, so you focus on the blind. Uh, was there a sense of solidarity between blind activists and others with disabilities? Was there a, a development of a disabled internationalism of sorts?
1: Yes, thank you for the question. Uh, so cross-disability movements uh, really started after World War II um For instance, uh, in the United Nations you have in 1952 the creation of the uh, conference so-called conference of people interested in, uh, uh, in in the handicapped. That was the terminology used at that time, of course. It's one of the first cross-disability movements uh, and some of the blind activists I study were on that uh, uh, committee too. Um, There is also RI, Rehabilitation International, uh, which started before World War II, but uh, uh, gained momentum after World War II. And Rehabilitation International was also cross-disability mostly. Um, Eventually, that was an organization of experts, uh, more than people with disabilities themselves. And it was uh, um, contested by... mm, People with Disabilities International, it was a parallel organization um, staffed by uh, people with disabilities. So there were some cross-disability movements, and the blind activists that I look at were both convinced that it's important to have a blind-specific group because of the particular needs uh, and capacities of blind people, but they were also participating at the UN level. Uh, They they were talking with... uh, activists with other types of disabilities and advocating for other types of disabilities
0: you, you mentioned that you uh, interviewed some former activists you had to knock on doors to get access to archives uh maybe um, some uh, disability activists or people with disabilities who are blind have you know learned some been engaged with your work in some way how have how have people with disabilities responded or people who are blind responded to, First, you coming along and wanting to write about it, and then second, to th- some of the arguments and conclusions you're you're making.
1: So, all the activists I uh, interviewed were enthusiastic about this, uh, and uh, they, um, they they were really happy somebody was writing about this from a scholarly perspective, was writing about this in English, uh, so making it make making their story accessible to larger publics. Uh, they were all very open. Um, their their memory was not always uh, 100% so uh, sometimes uh, you know i found discrepancies uh, uh, but uh, uh, they 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 were really willing to share with me their, their memories and they were wonderful uh, conversants. i had uh, multiple interviews with a few of them in person Uh, on Skype, on Zoom, on the telephone. Uh, I interviewed uh, people based in Spain, in uh, in Germany, in in Italy, in France, uh, uh, in Russia. So they really helped me. Um, In terms of my argument, uh, so I I will share with you a line uh, from an interview. I was uh, interviewing uh, Dr. Sigrid Cierna, who was uh, uh, one of the leaders of the Union of the Blind in the GDR. And I was asking questions, listening to his story. At a certain point, I wanted to test my argument with him. And I said, you know, when I talk about this with my colleagues, they, um, they suggest that your organization was just a front organization. What do you think about that? And he responded to me, there wouldn't be a biggest lie. Um, and I, I listened to his reasons why, and I took notes. A couple of months afterwards, I interviewed an Italian activist So from the other side. I asked him the same question, and I said, this is what Dr. Chilner said. And I, I repeated that to him in German, because this Italian activist uh, is bilingual. Uh, and he his response was, I wouldn't say that. I would say there is no big stupidity. Um, so they, they insisted to me that... Uh, they knew what the politics were, what the geopolitics were. They were very aware of all the limits and of the propaganda uh, constraints and imperatives of what was going on. But at the same time, they insisted they were doing something together. They had a common cause. They often talked about being a community of blind people that didn't see geopolitical divisions. And they used this metaphor frequently of not seeing Geopolitical divisions, um, so they liked my argument. <laughs> to put it shortly,
0: um, and, and finally, um, you know, you you are you're trying to rehabilitate the memory of this this moment, this this other side of the, you know, how we understand disability and disability rights. You know, as decentering the North Atlantic model, um, what can we learn? from this history you know as you said yourself a, few, a little while ago after 1991 the 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 socialist model state socialist model is discredited so what can we learn you know for the situation today what could you know blind people or activists or people who are interested in this learn from this story of activism under state socialism
1: yes so i think our what, what we can learn from this uh, are several things uh, uh, number one uh partnering with the state is not per se a sign of not doing disability advocacy or, or it's not a sign of not advocating or not upholding the the rights and the needs of people with disabilities so there is something about partnership with the state that uh, we can learn from this story um, it's the power of the welfare state of having a strong welfare state that supports that uh, in their budget in the in the uh, in the budget of the state, there are ways to support people with disabilities. So that's something important, especially as neoliberalism uh, uh, is uh, destroying these safety nets uh, and vulnerable people are uh, the first victims of all of this. So there is something about a state-centered model. Um, but also, I would say, in today's world, we imagine uh, people with disabilities as people with the right to consume. And uh, if you, 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 have, you become a model consumer, even if you are a person with disabilities. So there is still sig- stigma uh, related to disabilities, but the consumption moment uh, uh, is really important. Uh, well, I'm claiming that if we shift our perspective a bit and we think about different models and different types of rights, uh, we also expand the range of uh, uh, people with disabilities who can be model citizens.
0: Well, here's some questions from the chat. The first one is um, to what extent do you think these blind activists were interested in entering larger politics, but couldn't because of political and ableist constraints and the only political activities that were available to them were connected with their identity?
1: That's an excellent question. And I would say yes. Um, So in In many cases, these were veterans, Uh, so were people with a certain capital already, but who could not, uh, exactly as uh, the person asked, uh, they could not enter higher organs of the party, Uh, so for them uh, uh, this was uh, a space where they could be leaders, they could do a lot for their communities, but still was a marginal space. So we have to be very careful uh, when we talk about these people, when I talk about these people as ambassadors, as going in the world representing the Soviet Union. In the end they represented the Soviet Union in an area of, uh, uh, of work that was by itself marginalized all over the world and within the socialist countries. So they definitely had uh, leadership skills uh, and maybe even ambitions. Uh, and this was the best they could, uh, they could have. Um, I do see this argument, definitely.
0: Um, another question, um, in defectology, which I admit I didn't know was a thing, but in defectology, there were utopian driving forces to, quote, cure or, quote, eradicate different types of disabilities. Uh, how did defectologists relate to blindness after 1945? And was there a cooperation between defectologists and blind organizations?
1: Yes, there was. Yes, there was. Um, so, What that, is
0: defectology?
1: Uh, it's the science of... Um, It's a mix of special education and medical science in fixing, curing, uh, uh, correcting uh, uh, human defects. So it's a science of of fixing human defects and it had to do uh, with all sorts of defects of the mind and of the body. Um, so that the science itself existed since the 1920s, if not earlier, and it permeated uh, uh, initiatives of the Ministry of Education as well as as well as the Ministry of Social Welfare and uh, um, the Ministry of Public Health. So with uh, the connection with VOS are important. Uh, you have a num- a number of ophthalmologists or um, TIFLO pedagogists, so uh, teachers of, of the blind, uh, people who specialise in education of the blind, you have a num- number of people who um, look at technology and assistive technology. Those are all cited experts who closely collaborate with uh, uh, VOS. Now this question is important because it, it, it brings up the point of what type of model of disability was practiced here. Was it a medical model? Or was it the social model? Uh, The medical model is a model whereby disability is a problem, is a defect, it must be fixed, it must be corrected, it must be cured. The social model instead, uh, which developed uh, in in the UK and the US uh, uh, in the 70s and 80s mostly, the social model says that it is uh, the environment that makes somebody impaired. So the problem is not in the person, it is in the environment, it is in the milieu, and we need to change society. Uh, The social model also says that disability is not the impairment, but it is the way we look at, we construct bodies that are different. Now, when it comes to the socialist countries, and this is part of my argument, we see an interesting mix of the medical and the social model. On one hand, uh, disability is conceived as a defect, a problem, it must be overcome, it must be fixed. But on the other hand the solution to this is not charity as in the classic medical model is not exclusively medicine or special education to the contrary the solution implies a strong involvement of the state of society of creating the correct condition conditions that according to this model can be achieved only in socialism so you have it makes a combination of these models that create something specific to socialism where charity is not possible because it uh, dehumanizes, it takes emancipation away. So you have uh, a thrust for emancipation, at least in theory. But at the same time, the conception of disability is still as a deficit coming from this defectologia, uh, defectology science.
0: Is there something that you would like to end with that you didn't get a chance to to say that the questions haven't covered that you'd like to uh, make a statement about
1: I think i I covered it all um, one thing perhaps uh, that you know I have the feeling that all that I said is very celebratory of the socialist model well i I actually think there there were uh, some big limitations to this model, and one big limitation that I've not mentioned is the fact that uh, the the people who were given a stage to represent the good blind, the Soviet Union, were all model blind people. They were those who were overperforming. Uh, so this model by itself uh, erased uh, all those blind people who didn't want to work, could not work, didn't want to fit uh, with the uh, uh, feats of labour model or the overcoming of their defects. so. The issue of visibility here is key. You have these ambassadors of social progress themselves embodying social progress, giving visibility to blind people internationally, but at the same time as they give visibility to the model blind, they make invisible a large group of other blind people.
0: How did the this uh, welfare, because it, it from the way you tell it, you're mostly, it's adults. So what kind of... Um, uh, welfare institutions were given to say, parents that have children who were, who were blind. How did it, did it, was there, what was, how did children fit into this or even young people?
1: Well, there were boarding schools. So all the schools of the blind were on the internet model. So boarding schools, uh, um, in, uh, in the GDR, there were even preschool, uh, Schools, so before the age of three, uh, where children were uh, placed there by their parents uh, sometimes. Uh, uh, most times, I have to say, parents agreed to place their children there because indeed, uh, in the good ones of these institutions, uh, they had all the resources to be well educated. Now, we know very well from the reality of, uh, of communism that not all of these bo- boarding schools and institutions had enough resources. Um, but so, children until the age of 16 were in school, were in these boarding schools. And afterwards, uh, they moved to the next institution, which were the, the vocational schools, the production training workshops. And they might uh, uh, spend their entire lives in this parallel world. And that's part of the problem, the segregation, uh, problem.
0: That was Christina Galmarini. Christina Galmarini is an associate professor of history and global studies at William and Mary college, where she researches the history of disability under socialism. She's the author of the right to be helped deviance, entitlement, and the Soviet moral order. And she's currently finishing a book titled ambassadors of social progress a history of international blind activism during the Cold War. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, thank you to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblestnesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye.
2: Yes, I am blind. I can't see the good things Just the bad things of the world Yes, I am blind No, I can't see There must be something horribly wrong with me